It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Bank's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your marks ways, but it's only just a place. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means armchair politics coming up in about an hour for two hours of uh, commentary and analysis about recent headlines in the worlds of politics and current events. Uh, Wesley Whitaker will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, for today's edition of Armchair Politics. But we start out first this hour uh, with, um, actually, we're going to be catching up a little bit. Normally, we do this the first Wednesday of the month, but we moved it uh, back to the second Wednesday when uh, we start out the show with Economist from U of M Flint, Chris Douglas, complete with his own theme song. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. It's always great to be here, and thanks to the thanks for the theme song. It makes <laughs> me feel like a professional wrestler walking out to the ring. <laughs> well, um, is what kind of wrestling match is going on with the economy this uh, this month? I'm. I, I'm reading that there's indecision about whether or not we uh, qualify for a recession after yet uh, U.S. productivity falling for two straight quarters. Yeah, so that's the traditional definition of a recession. So if you pick up any introductory economic textbook and flip open the chapter to the business cycle, that's how a recession will be defined, two consecutive quarters of declining real gross domestic product. So, so real gross domestic product just... So are we in a uh, recession or not? <laughs> uh, yeah, so gross domestic product, that's just the value of all final goods and services that are produced. So if you think about the dictionary definition of a recession, a recession means to move back. So 
Well, if the production of goods and services have has declined or moved back for two consecutive quarters, well, that's kind of the dictionary definition of a recession. Um, that's not the definition of what the National Bureau of Economic Research uses when determining if there's a recession or not. So the National Bureau of Economic Research is this private group of economists based out by Boston um, that conducts economic research. So they have a business cycle dating committee that tries to determine when recessions start to stop. It's unofficial. I mean, it's not like the government uses them to officially determine whether or not the country's in a recession, but it's kind of what everyone uses. And they use a different definition of a recession. You know, they say, is there an overall decline in economic activity? So production is one. Um, they look at total employment. They look at total spending. Um, they try to make a determination if the economy's in a recession or not. So they they might look at the economy and say, well, sure, GDP's declined for two consecutive quarters, but nothing else is declining, so we don't think the economy's in a recession. Um, I would say that if you go back since the end of World War II, every time GDP's declined for two consecutive quarters, the economy has been in a recession as determined by the National Bureau of Economic Research. So my initial thought is, yeah, the economy is in a recession, you know, despite the fact that Unemployment hasn't gone up yet. Total employment hasn't gone down yet. Total spending hasn't fallen yet. Uh, those things tend to lag the broader economy. So just because the July job numbers looked pretty good, 500,000 new jobs created last month, uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that jobs can't be lost uh, moving forward into 2022 because that's what's happened before previous recessions. So if you think back to the Great Recession, which is December 2007 to June 2009, um, the economy added jobs in December 2007 uh, before starting to shed jobs as the Great Recession picked up steam. So I think people should be concerned that, well, the economy has declined for the first half of 2022 because, historically speaking, you know, that's been a harbinger of bad things to come. Where does um, the, the rapid wage growth fit into this? Um, and and how does does inflation play a role? Is are are there things going on in the economy that are um, going the other way from what typically happens in a recession? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, um, because I think there's a lot of weirdness with COVID, um, inflation being one. So to put on my Bill Clinton hat. You said rapid. Well, it depends on what you mean by the word rapid. You know, just like you said, it determines what you mean by the word is. So you can say, on the one hand, to do the Harry Truman economist, you could say, well, wages have increased by about 5% in 2022. Um, I think in the July jobs report, um, it showed that wages had increased by, I believe, 5.3%. It might have been 5.6%, but we'll just call it 5%. So you say, well, on the one hand, that's rapid. But then on the other hand, inflation is 9%, which means prices are increasing by 9%, which means wages really didn't increase. They fell by 4%. You know, people's purchasing power fell by 4%. So if you want to do a counterfactual, suppose we live in a world where inflation is 0%, um, prices are flat, and wages only increase by 1%. Well, that would be a better world to, world to live in because that meant your purchase, purchasing power went up by 1% rather than falling by 4%. So really, wages aren't increasing. Um, adjusted for inflation, which is what workers really care about, wages are falling. So that kind of gets back to, are we in a recession or not? Well, 
know, that question is kind of an academic question. You, know, you just kind of arguing about a definition. Really, the question is, is the economy good or not? And if you think about an economy where GDP has declined for half the year, and really wages have, have fallen for half the year by 4%, we'd say, well, that's not a really good economy, right? That's probably what a recession would be. So I think given the decline in GDP, given inflation, given the, the, the decline in what are called real wages, yeah, you could argue that the economy is in a recession right now. One of the things that, that people have been um, anxious about, uh, both economists and, you know, uh, Jane and Joe public, um, is the absence of certain goods on the shelves when they, when they go to market. And a lot of that was being blamed on the war in Ukraine. How is the inability of Ukraine to ship grain out affecting um, food all over the world? So I think it depends on, again, to do another economist answer, it depends. It depends where you are in the world. So if you're in the U.S., which is a net exporter of food, food will still be available. You, you go to the grocery store, there's like random stuff that's out of stock, but food's still available. And I think the random stuff out of stock in the U.S. is just a product of supply chain disruptions, labor shortages, just the production hiccups we've become accustomed to um, during the last two years thanks to COVID. So if you talk about Ukraine and the inability of Ukraine to ship out food, that's going to decrease the world supply of food, which means in the U.S. food will get more expensive. It'll be available. It'll just be more expensive. But for the rest of the world that is more dependent on food shipments from Ukraine, food will both get more expensive and food will become more unavailable. In that, if you think about like a country in Africa that's maybe hard to ship grain to, um, they might get a good chunk of their grain from the Ukraine. Like Lebanon, for instance, gets a good chunk of its grain from the Ukraine. So if food prices go shooting way up in those countries, it's very difficult logistically to replace Ukrainian grain with, say, grain shipped from the U.S. So people in those countries will have the unfortunate instance of having food be more expensive and, you know, much more unavailable, which is why there are people out there saying, you know, the risk of famine is very severe for, you know, countries in Africa, countries in the Middle East, countries that have proximity from the Ukraine and thus would get their grain shipped from the Ukraine rather than, say, from the United States or some other grain producing nation. I know it's going to so sound, it's going to sound funny. Oh, no, go ahead. It's going to sound funny when I say this, but just within the last few weeks, a boatload of grain left Ukraine. <laughs> Literally right. a boatload. Um, and and people were reacting as if crisis over. Can a single shipment make that much difference? No, I mean, it's better than nothing, but... You kind of think about how many shipments did it take place because of the war. It's probably a lot more than one. So, I don't know. People always want to kind of... Well, are people just being hopeful that this is the first of regular shipments and, and so they're being uh, overly optimistic or, or uh, what, enthusiastic, yeah, um, uh, even though 
one uh, one boatload does not uh, a a global food supply make. Yeah, it's always hard to just put yourself in people's minds and understand what they're thinking. But if I was going to try to do that, I would say, well, part of it is trying to be optimistic and saying, well, maybe the famine won't be as bad as it could it could be. You know, maybe this is the harbinger of future grade shipments to come. And then some of it might just be propaganda, uh, because it seems like the war in Ukraine hasn't gone the way that uh, policymakers of the West thought it would go. And that back in February, it seems like policymakers of the West thought, well, we're going to slap these massive sanctions on Putin, flood the Ukraine full of Western weapons, and the Russian economy will collapse. The Russians will get bogged down thanks to Western weapons, and Putin will have to retreat with his tail between his legs. And that really hasn't happened. Um, the Russians seem to be making steady gains in the eastern part of the Ukraine. Maybe the gains are the gains, like any war. You know, country goes to war, they think it's going to be quick and easy, and it never is. So uh, the, the, the gains haven't been as quick and as easy as perhaps the Putin propaganda said it would be, but the gains seem to be fairly steady. And the Russian economy doesn't seem to be collapsing. Um, if anything, the Russian economy seems to be strengthening throughout the war. Uh, the ruble is appreciated compared to its pre-war value, um, simply because the Russians have things that the rest of the world wants to buy in terms of oil, gas, uh, natural resources. And the Russians are saying, well, if you want to buy our oil, we want payment in rubles, which means countries who want to buy Russian oil have to go to the world currency market, buy rubles, and then pay for the oil in rubles, which pushes the value of the ruble up. So the Russian economy is not collapsing. Um, the Russian army is not collapsing. And it seems like there's a possibility of world famine as food production gets disrupted. So perhaps there's some Western propaganda out there saying, well, Perhaps the war is not going as well as we thought it was going to go, but look, the famine is not going to come because we got a shipment of grain out of the Ukraine. So I would chalk up those news stories to optimism coupled with just propaganda that you would see in any, any conflict, not just this one. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, chip manufacture in the U.S. Um, is, is this new uh, initiative uh, signed by the president a big deal? I don't think so. Um, I think it's going to be really hard to reshore um, a big industry from a foreign country back to the U.S. It seems like mostly it's a giveaway to special interests. At least that's the take I, I see. Uh, the government always has a tough time picking winners and losers. And it <laughs> always takes a long time to, to build a brand new factory of anything in the United States. So even if the government could pick winners and losers, you know, how long would it take to build a brand new chip factory and then shift chip production from, say, Taiwan, where it takes place right now, back to the U.S.? I think that would take a long time period. Well, so, that, that also raises another interesting question, and that's about what uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is doing in Taiwan. And I'd like to get into that, although it, it may be a little bit off the the beaten path as the economy is concerned or maybe not but we'll get into that i have to take a break here chris can you stick around oh sure all I'll right we'll be back with more with economist chris douglas from the university of michigan flint right after this Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Sterling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. Chris, welcome back. It's great to be here, Tom. Um, You know, I mentioned right before the break, and I didn't want to get off too much into politics, but I couldn't help wondering when when rumors started circulating that uh, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was going to go to Taiwan. Um, I I was trying to think, why Nancy Pelosi? And then um, I I, I got thinking that there there might be some sort of... um, uh, negotiation to try and get some American companies that are producing things in Taiwan, chips in particular, um, to come back to the States or to attract uh, Taiwan-based companies to locate in the U.S. and make chips. Um, and then, you know, coincidentally, the president signed this uh, CHIP Act this week, um, what do you think is is going on there? Do you think this is some kind of a uh, an economic um, effort? Yeah, I, to be honest, I don't get the Nancy Pelosi trip to Taiwan at all. Um, it doesn't seem like she met with um, business leaders over there. She didn't stay very long. It seems like she stayed. A few hours met with government officials and then took off again. And if it was a if it was a trip about commerce, you know, you would send the commerce secretary or something like that. You wouldn't send the person third in line to the presidency. So it seems like it's an unnecessary provocation of the Chinese. The Chinese are super sensitive about Taiwan. I mean, the Taiwan policy is pretty convoluted in the sense that you know Taiwan's you know quote unquote part of China, but it really isn't. Everyone kind of thinks of it as being an independent country, but you can't really say that because that really ticks off the Chinese. So uh, the American government always tries to walk this fine line in considering Taiwan as part of China, what well, kind of treating it separately in practice. But for whatever reason, if you if a high-ranking government official goes to Taiwan on a state visit, which is what Nancy Pelosi did, the, the Chinese just view that as a huge provocation because that could be a precursor to Taiwanese independence, which the, which is the Chinese find completely unacceptable, even though for all intents and purposes it functions like an independent country. So you risk provocation with a huge country, China, for the state visit, so there's that huge potential cost. And, like, what was the benefit from the Pelosi visit? As far as I could tell, there there was no benefit. Uh, she lands, gets her picture taken, then takes off again. So just on the surface, it just doesn't seem like the trip makes you know any sort of sense. You know why provoke the Chinese um, at a time where you know the global economy and uh, the geopolitical environment is pretty perilous. Unless maybe it was one of those, um, you know, everybody back to their corners move. There, there was some speculation going on that with what was going on uh, in Ukraine. Um, that China might be looking at this being a time to, you know, fully annex Taiwan in a in a much more complete way, and and that maybe a high-ranking government official from the U.S. was a, a reminder that. 
the U.S. is still supportive of, of Taiwanese uh, autonomy, if not independence? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a possibility, but it seems like that's a real ham-fisted way to go about it. It, it did, like it did to me too, Chris. I, I, I just can't, you know, I was expecting some big announcement, and it never came. Yeah, if you look at how the Chinese military responded, they responded with you know drills of the South China Sea, um, drills and circulating, encircling the island of Taiwan, um, overflights of the island of Taiwan. You know, people thought it was kind of like a dry run for an invasion, just showing like Taiwan that hey, if you know things really get serious, you know we could invade. So, if anything, it seems like it inflamed the situation by provoking a response from the Chinese military. So, perhaps that's all it'll be, is a a response to the form of military drills. But again, it's like, why escalate things? It it just doesn't really make any sense to escalate things for no discernible benefit. Especially if you start thinking about supply chain issues. You're talking about the CHIPS Act, which I'm skeptical to anything to produce chips in the United States. But the majority of chip manufacturing takes place in Taiwan. If there was a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, that would completely disrupt computer chip manufacturing and just you know, make the supply chain issue we're looking at right now look perfect in comparison. So it's always just hard to get like what the U.S. government does um, sometimes. This is one of those cases. Um, well, the Wall Street... Journal is uh, reporting that um, some U.S. legislators are pushing the uh, the Fed, the, the Federal Reserve, to move swiftly toward issuing a digital dollar in an effort to combat steps from China. What is a digital dollar, and how does that um, factor into... Uh, uh, the the economic war, if there is such a thing, between the U.S. and China? Yeah, I don't think the digital dollar would do anything to you know combat, combat any sort of economic war between the U.S. and China. I mean, if the digital dollar is just a digitized version of the paper dollar, you know, what difference does it make if you're using paper dollars versus digital dollars? It's kind of like, what's the difference between paying in cash or writing a check? I don't see any discernible difference. You know, if there's any sort of economic war between the U.S. and China that causes causes the U.S. dollar to crash, you know, why would it that cause the digital dollar to crash at the same time? Uh, but unless the Federal Reserve was going to issue a completely different dollar, completely unrelated to the U.S. dollar, and to just manage two currencies rather than one, which seems very unlikely. Uh, I think the digital dollar is just a way to try to get people to use a digital dollar instead of other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or the million other cryptocurrencies out there to try to bring you know cryptocurrencies under the umbrella of the Federal Reserve rather than just being managed by whatever random person issued that cryptocurrency. So I don't think it really has anything to do with China because if you have a real war between the U.S. and China, right, there's nothing the Federal Reserve could do to offset the massive damage that would result, which is... Another reason why I think that the Pelosi trip was just so massively irresponsible, you know, at this time, uh, post-pandemic, with everything else going on in the world. Um, what is the the status of um, 
inflation. Some surveys are showing that, that Americans don't expect inflation to keep accelerating. Um, what, what, do you th what do you expect? Well, we'll see when the inflation numbers are released today. Um, I, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, um, I would bet inflation is high, but not as high as it was last month. So last month we're talking 9.1%. A lot of that is fueled by, I guess, pun intended, oil and gasoline prices. And those have moderated somewhat over the last month. Um, here in Grand Blake, where I live, um, I like to distance run as a hobby. So when I run, I kind of run by two gas stations. I can kind of look at what the price is. And for the first time since really February, the price is under, under four bucks a gallon. Um, it also, if you look at housing prices, housing prices are starting to soften, which is not surprising given that interest rates are rising. So shelter is about a third of the consumer price index. Uh, fuel, I believe, is just under 10% of the consumer price index. I might be off a little bit about that. But the point is, if you have two major components of the consumer price index starting to moderate, that should bring the overall consumer price index down a little bit compared to previous readings. So if I had to guess, inflation will be high when the numbers are released, I believe it's today, but it's not going to be 9.1%. I would guess probably, you know, 8%, 8.5%, something like that. I could be wrong, though. Uh, maybe maybe I'll continue to increase. But if you look at consumer inflation expectations, I agree those have fallen. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is if you look at the prices consumers see every day, it's really gasoline prices, right? You drive by multiple gas stations every day. It's a price you interact with every day. So if those prices start to come down, your consumer inflation expectations might start to come down as well. Well, hey, if gas is down a buck a gallon compared to Memorial Day, well, maybe that's going to be that prices across the economy are going to start to come down as well. And also, you have really 40 years of low inflation. You know, we haven't had more than 2% inflation since the early 1980s. So you have 40 years of history that feeds into consumer expectations. It's going to take perhaps more than a year of high inflation to offset that 40 years worth of history. And that consumers might be saying, well, sure, inflation's high right now. It's really bad that it's high right now. My standard of living is falling because of it. But look, inflation's at a low for, four, for the last 40 years. It'll get back to being low again. You know, it takes more than a year's worth of disruption to, for consumers to think, well, things are going to be permanently disrupted. It's kind of like supply chains. You know, consumers might be saying, well, it's hard to buy a new car right now thanks to the chip shortage. You know, when I go to the grocery store, things will be randomly out of stock. But we've got decades worth of history to say, well, that's not how things usually are. This is going to take more than a year or two's worth of supply chain disruptions and random shortages for consumers to say, well, this is what what the new normal is. So I think that's a lot of expectations. You know, consumers just have a long history of how things are. And it's going to take more than a couple of years worth of change for people to say, well, this is not how things are now. You know, those 40 years plus of history no longer applies. So hopefully consumers are right. You know, that inflation will come back down to being the 2% that we're accustomed to, that supply chains will right themselves. But, you know, there's no guarantee that'll happen. What about the interest rate? Will that continue to rise unless we start seeing some inflation uh, shrinking back a little bit? Uh, so while we're talking, I just 
refresh CNBC, um, consumer prices rose by 8.5%. So my intuition was right. What did I say? Eight to eight and a half percent. So, um, so it's, down, it's down, but still high. How, right, right. how will it's that just, impact what the Fed does with interest rates? Because they usually adjust those as as a counterbalance to inflation, don't they? Yeah, so looking at the Dow Jones right now, Dow opens up at 10 o'clock in the morning. Dow futures are up by 400 points. NASDAQ surges by 2%. So I think what the market is saying is, well, maybe the Federal Reserve doesn't have to go big with another big rate increase, right? They've done two 75 basis point increases over the last two months. And other people say, well, maybe they'll do 100 basis points, which is a full percentage point increase at their next meeting. Well, if inflation is moderated somewhat, 8.5%, well, maybe they won't do 75 or 100 basis points. Maybe they'll do 50. So if the Federal Reserve hikes less because of inflation moderating somewhat, um, that should um, result in less of an economic slowdown. I mean, if you look at why the economy slows down, traditionally it's increase in interest rates and increasing oil prices. And oil prices are starting to moderate. Um, this inflation number suggests that, well, maybe interest rate, hike, interest rate hikes will moderate. So any economic slowdown perhaps will moderate. And that's maybe what the stock market's responding to right now, with Dow futures shooting up by nearly 500 points. What are the things that you're um, that you've been focusing on? What do you think the the big headlines have been and should be going forward? So I think um, if you're talking about, oh man, there's so much. I was going to say two things and then as soon as I was going to say that I was going to think about more things. <laughs> he so, started thinking I'll three just, and four. <laughs> yeah. So I'll just give a long random, rambling answer so you can feel free to interrupt if I get too off track. But I would say interest rates and oil prices are traditionally two drivers of the business cycle, which gets back to our first question, are we in a recession or not? I didn't say the answer is yes because both have increased over 2022. But if we're seeing oil prices moderate and we're seeing inflation start to moderate a little bit, although 8.5% still really high, well, that'll help interest rates moderate somewhat, which will help any economic slowdown maybe not be as bad as it otherwise would be. But if we see oil spike again, and if we see the Federal Reserve get aggressive at increasing interest rates, I think we would expect the economy to really slow down as a result. And then if you start thinking about the labor market, um, one reason why people would say, well, we're not in a recession right now, despite the two quarters of declining GDP, is because the labor market hasn't responded. Um, the unemployment rate remains at 3.5%. Actually, it ticked down by 0.1 percentage point from 3.6% uh, to 3.5%. So the unemployment rate remains low. Um, job growth remains strong. So how could we be in a recession when both those two things are happening? And I think the answer is, is that we've seen changes in the labor market over the last two years thanks to COVID. And that only just now, in July, did total employment in the economy return to where it was before COVID, um, meaning February 2020. So only just right now is total employment in the economy where it was in February 2020. Which sounds good to say the economy's regained all the lost jobs that have, have happened over the pandemic. But on the other hand, it's really not good to say 
Because what that means is the economy lost out on two years' worth of job gains that would have otherwise happened had the pandemic and the shutdown did not take place. So if you look at before the pandemic, um, you're, you're talking like end of 2019, first couple months of 2020, the economy's adding 100,000 to 150,000 new jobs per month. So had the shutdowns not happened, had the pandemic not happened, that probably would have continued, which means that, well, had that continued, their economy probably would have 4 million more jobs now compared to what it currently has. So the economy is still short two years' worth of job gains. And the question is, is why Why is that the case? And Well, yeah, that kind, of begs, that kind of begs the question that... Um, you know, what does recovering from the economic impact of the pandemic look like? What what indicators can we use to say, oh, well, we have recovered? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because if you look at total employment, you say, well, we really haven't recovered because we're still short all these jobs that would have been created had the shutdowns not taken place. But then the question is, is isn't that offset by the jobs that would have been lost? Yeah, that would have been lost if there was a recession, you know. Oh, well, with or without time. a recession, I mean, job gains, there are job gains and job losses going on concurrently all the time. Wouldn't the job oh. losses of the last two years offset the job gains that were... The ones that we would have been having, wouldn't they have offset the the job gains that we would have been having a little bit? Oh, although that one hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand number uh, figure I tossed out, that was net job gains. So if you take job gains minus oh, okay. top losses, okay, yeah, I got you. Yeah, I, you're you know, you're right. It's always like you know, four million jobs are lost, about four point one million, four point two million are gained. But that's not the numbers that are reported. It's always a net number that's reported. But yeah, I mean, it's still an interesting question. Like, why, you know, why hasn't the, why hasn't total employment returned to what's called trend? Meaning, if you just kind of plot out a trend of total jobs in the economy, you know, here's where we would be had there not been a recession. Here's where we currently are. So we're about four million jobs below trend. So why are we still so far below trend? And I don't think there's a great answer for that, other than it seems like there's been a lot of labor force exit over the course of the pandemic. And then the question becomes, well, why are people exiting the labor force? Well, no one really seems to know the answer to that question, which is a bit unusual since I think it's such an important question. But if you look at some indicators, those might provide a hint. So you can look at something called the employment to population ratio, like what percentage of the population has a job. Um, that is still below where it was in February 2020. So right now, a smaller percentage of the population has a job compared to before the pandemic, which is a bit unusual. So what that says is, you know, people who were in the labor force in February 2020 left and never returned. And then the question is, well, who are those people? So you can look at the employment to population ratio for what are called primed age working people. So those people age 25 to 54 by your prime working age. So I would be in that, although I don't really consider myself prime, but I'm 43, so I'm in that in that demographic. And that ratio has returned to where it was in February 2020. So the percentage of the people who are employed 25 to 54 years old, same percentage it was it was before the pandemic. So those people have returned. So it's the people outside of that age range who are not returned. So largely that means people over 54 years old. 
So it seems like older people have exited the labor force and haven't returned. And part of the reason might be, well, COVID and the shutdown sped up retirement. You know, if you're in your late 50s, you're thinking over the next five years, I'm going to retire. Your your job gets eliminated because of a shutdown. Maybe you start retirement early. So I would guess that a lot of older individuals haven't returned to the labor force um, after things have largely reopened. Um, Consequently, a lot of the jobs that have disappeared over the last two years aren't returning simply because, you know, the people who filled those jobs haven't returned to the labor force. So that might be one reason why total employment in the economy remains below trend. And I think there's other things going on, too. There's always this issue of child care. Um, I think that's a real challenge if you have kids. Um, Your daycare is probably shorthanded, so you might get an email a random morning saying, well, we don't have workers today, so there's no daycare. Well, how do you go back to work if, like, daycare is a big question mark? Or if your daycare doesn't have shortages, well, the price has probably doubled over the last two years. So a lot of people are saying, well, you know, most of my paycheck was going to daycare before the shutdown. Now, after the shutdown, almost all my paycheck is going to daycare. Well, why not just stay home with my kid rather than working to spend all my money on private daycare? Right, right. So if you're going to hold a gun to my head and say, why haven't people returned to the labor force? After COVID, that's the two answers I would give. Older workers who haven't returned, plus people with child care responsibilities being unable to find child care, and thus maybe one parent out of two staying home with the kids. Well, Chris, uh, we're going to have to put uh, an end to it right there. And uh, normally this is where I'd be inviting you back at the beginning of next month, but uh, I'm announcing next hour during Armchair Politics that I'll be suspending operations of the show at the end of the month. I don't know what I'm going to do going forward, but I hope you'll be available if I should want to call on you. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry to hear that you're suspending operations for the show i hope everything's okay oh yeah 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 it's um there's just there's like a lot of uh a lot of businesses and a lot of uh endeavors there's just been a decline in in revenue and listenership and um i'm gonna rethink what's next but I, i i don't know what that will be yet but i've picked a point in time Okay, I just want to let you know how much I've enjoyed talking with you every month. The oh, time always flies versa. by when we're... It does. It, it really does. Anyway, Chris, thank you so much for all your help and support. And I look forward to uh, reaching out to you again in the future. Absolutely. Uh, keep in touch. You know how to get a hold of me. So I look forward to talking with you again, hopefully sometime soon. All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, you're welcome.
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Loan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flipflip Technology, My Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. 
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I wanted to get some new girlfriends So I went and bought a Mercedes Benz A waste of money Eight thousand bucks down the drain I thought the girls would get wild and reckless So I bought cultured pearls And a diamond necklace A waste of money That cost me four thousand more They were returned I got no girls they repossessed Both the car and the pearls I styled my hair Just like Cary Grant's Bought a pair Of those new Tight pants A waste of money Household finance Took my pants (laughs) The female gender I just Don't get it Just when I'm out Of both cash and credit I found a honey And this is what's funny She don't need my money She works for household finance This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Try to fool me Give me them big white wings And 
are getting around Size is where it's at You ladies know what I'm talking about The ride is long and fat That ain't no Cadillac Don't try to fool me Isolated life ain't all that bad 
Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. <laughs> 